Today's reading is from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, everyone. You guys are the best. I haven't even said anything yet. It's good to see you all. Happy New Year. Um, It's good to be talking with you this morning. Uh, I'm one of the pastoral residents here at Redemption, and I also lead the fifth and sixth grade ministries here, the director here for that. So special shout out to my fifth and sixth graders. I know you guys are somewhere around in here, but good to see you guys. Um, We're going to jump into James chapter 2. So open up your Bibles there and turn to James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Keep your hand up high. Keep it there until you have a Bible in your hand. This is something that we as a church, we want to make sure that you always have a copy of God's Word. So if you don't have a copy of the Bible, hold on to that. Keep that Bible. If you're just borrowing the Bible, make sure at the end of the day you just leave it on your seat. Don't steal the Bible. Something really unique about what we're going to talk about today. James, he writes a letter to a church. That's what this is. It's a letter. And what's really unique about James is he's the brother of Jesus. That's a unique perspective, one that's unique to no one else that writes something in the scriptures. And I grew up in a big mixed family. I've got brothers and sisters, and I know what it's like to be a brother, to be a big brother and also a younger brother as well, and to know just what makes your brother's heart tick. What makes them think? What do they get excited about, animated about, and brothers just know each other. I'm, the other day, a couple weeks ago, my youngest brother called me up, and he's like, hey, I got a gift for you. I'm like, what? He's like, I can't tell you what it's it yet. I'm like, tell me what it is. He's like, no, I can't tell you. I just had to tell you that you were going to have a gift so you could get all excited and then wait, because if I don't get you excited, then it won't be as cool when you actually get it. I'm like, all right, <laughs> all right, well, and this younger brother, we spent a lot of time growing up playing video games. We loved that. That was our passion together. We shared it together. And there was one game in particular that we love. I mean, I have memories, sounds, smells that will bring me back to playing that video game with him. And as silly as it sounds, it's something that really has fond memories in my heart. And so my brother knows this. We love it. And yet we played this game for a long time. I got to the end of the game and I just turned it off, never completed it. I couldn't get to the last bit. Because then that time would be over, and I has too many fond memories, and so I never completed it. And someone asked me, what do you think your brother is getting you? What's the gift? I'm like, you know what, I, bet, I think I know what it is. I bet you he played the whole game through, got to the last bit, and then saved it there for me so that we can finish it together. I'm like, what, really? It's an odd thing to like, think about. I'm like, I'm telling you, that's exactly what he did. Sure enough, he talks to me. He's like, I'm like, what's the gift? He's like, guess what it is? I tell him that guess, and he's like, you got it. 
the joke between me and my, my brother, uh, my brothers, is we really do have a lot of similarities. You know what makes each other's heart beat, and that's exactly what James is for Jesus. He saw him grow up. He knew what it was like to hang out with young 12-year-old Jesus. He got to see him in his ministry, and he even got to see him on the cross and watch his brother die. He heard his teachings. He heard everything that he was passionate about and what really mattered to Jesus. He saw him turn the world upside down, learn to look up to him as his savior. And so I'd imagine that as he's speaking to the church, he can think with real clarity exactly what Jesus would be saying in those situations. So when this letter is sent to a church, and I think that in some of the things we're going to get in today, James gets pretty heated. And I think the reason he does is because he remembers what his brother was so passionate about. So we're going to jump right into it. James chapter 2, we're starting verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Good question. He's going to answer it. We're going to jump right into it. But before we do, I think it's worth actually asking that question. Can a faith like that actually save? And define some of the things that he's saying. I mean, what does he mean by save? And what's he talking about works? As you notice when we go through the scripture, some of the things that he says are going to kind of like butt against some of our theologies that we've really fleshed out in our last series in Romans. And so I think it is important we know exactly what he's saying. I mean, first off, what's he mean by save? Two things. He's talking about saving, renewal, right here, right now. He's talking to a people who were Jewish people. There weren't any Christians at the time. I mean, it was, it was the brand new church, and there was Jews who accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. All they had was the Old Testament. And he was talking about saving as Jesus made a brand new community that would look different right here, right now, and that would also, in the future, know the full saving grace of God as he comes back, and they get to be with him forever. So what does he mean by works then? Well, in his mind, again, the works that he's talking about are what the Jews would have seen as works, good works. It was the law, the Old Testament law, the Torah, the first five books, and how Israel should live is a brand new community, but a little twist. How it was redefined when his brother Jesus got on the scene. In fact, someone asked Jesus, and I imagine James is thinking back to this as well as he's saying that. Jesus was asked by someone, okay, what's the greatest commandment, teacher? In Matthew 22, it says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the law and the prophets. All works, the works that he's talking about, depend on two things. You love God with everything that you have. And the second thing, you love others, neighbors, as yourself. And so we get the question, can that kind of faith without any works save? And he answers it with a little bit of a story. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, 
be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So those words in themselves are really nice. I mean, they're like this. They were a prayer. Go in peace, be warmed, be filled. That person is genuinely saying something that is good. The problem is he's walking away, and there's two people behind him that have empty bellies and don't have clothing that they need. Nothing wrong with the statements, the words that he said. It's that he didn't actually act with his hands. James, the answer is plain and simple. Faith, saying you have faith without actually acting on the way that Jesus described the law, that's dead. It's about as useful as someone saying, oh, you're hungry? Be filled. See you later. Doesn't leave you with anything. And I wonder if here in this moment, James is remembering another story of Jesus about the Good Samaritan, a very famous parable. In fact, it comes right on the heels of this question, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And Jesus said, you love your neighbor as yourself. And the person responds, who's my neighbor then, Jesus? And Jesus goes, okay, let me tell you a story. And he talks about a man who's on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and gets beaten to the point of death. He's left there alone. And along comes by a Levite, someone who is a part of the tribe specifically designated to worshiping God and caring for the people of Israel. He sees the man beaten and bloodied, and he walks on. And then a priest comes by. Good, the priest is here. Okay, he'll help. He walks on by, goes to the other side of the road. No one helps. Until someone, the good Samaritan, which he's called good, but, I mean, the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. This enemy of this guy who was beaten and bloodied comes and helps him, takes him to a hotel, gets him nursed back to health, gives him more than is needed to pay for his stay, and says, take care of this man. He's the only one that helped. And then he finishes that story, and Jesus goes, who do you think was the man's neighbor? Just leaves it open-ended. So, why would these people fail so miserably in actually caring for people that needed it? That's what I want to know. Why is there this Christian in James' letter who's going, go in peace, and then leaving these people without anything? And why are these Levite priests walking by with all the good theology and ideas in the world and not actually doing anything? I think Martin Luther King Jr. gives a really good, helpful explanation on what exactly was going on in this parable, and I think, too, what's going on in the story James gives. He says, I imagine that the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort, and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy, the true neighbor will risk his position, his prestige, and even his life for the welfare of others. And that is what he's talking about. He's talking about there's situations where people in the church will say a lot of really nice things, and then the action, the time for action, and tangible things comes, we fail. I've experienced this myself. I was in China this, uh, this summer, and 
we are with this organization called Ribbon. And Ribbon's ministry, what they really wanted to do is make sure that the homosexual community would get health care and would get treatment and testing for AIDS and HIV because it's a population that was actually very much in China is affected by that. Because of their sexuality, they unfortunately can't get much help from the government. And so what they do is they go out and they give them information on testing. They help them connect with churches, help them get health care. And so we went out with this group, Ribbon, one night, and we were going to go and spend some time in this park where this group met. And we're going to pass out some pamphlets about HIV and AIDS testing and awareness, talk to them about Jesus. This is something that the community wanted to do with us. And so we, we walked in, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little hesitant because, one, I don't speak Chinese at all. I know how to say hi, ni hao, that's it. And so I'm walking into a situation where it's dark, I'm in a back alley of, of China, literally, like an alley. And I'm talking to people I don't know. I can't read their body language. I don't understand what they're saying. I'm relying on a translator. And I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. And I know p- some people got real amazing gifts of evangelism in those kind of situations. But for me, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and so I'm there. And add on to it, we, some of the people had said beforehand, hey, make sure you stick in groups. Oh, why? Okay, why? Oh, well, there was, you know, there was a mass stabbing in Western China, so you want to make sure you're taking care. And so I'm, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I remember a guy coming up, and he starts to tell his story. And we're talking to him about the gospel. And he stops, and he goes, I'm scared. And the translator goes, oh, what are you scared about? And he's like, I'm scared I'm going to get HIV, and I'm going to die. And my heart was like, man. And I, we were talking to him about Jesus and talking to him about Jesus. And ended up walking away. It was a good situation. But I, had, I have a regret about that situation. What I wish I did is the second that guy said that is walk up to him, wrap him in my arms, and said, just as I'm embracing you, Jesus wants to embrace you and hold you. Because I didn't give him anything tangible to show him God's love in that moment. That's a little thing. But you know why I hesitated? I was worried about me. My safety, what people could think, mass stabbings. (laughs) And when it came to that moment, I preached the gospel, but I preached the gospel at arm's distance and nothing more. And I think that's exactly what James is talking about. He gives us an example where people are saying really good religious things, but it is at arm's distance. And I don't feel like I'm alone in this experience looking back and thinking, I didn't practice what I preached in that moment. I think of like some of the things that we're very quick to speak on. We're quick to talk out about racial injustice, we get into conversations about Ferguson, and we can tell our opinions really quickly, and when it comes to the brokenness in the world and what's going on with ISIS, we have a lot of ideas, a lot of really good words, and yet we're slow and hesitant to actually get our hands involved in something that costs us, and to do anything other than what costs us more than some ink on paper or some air from our lungs. James is saying, you want to see faith that actually saves. It's plain and simple. You're following what my brother taught. You love God with everything, and you love your neighbor as you would yourself. You turn MLK's question around, and you go, not what would happen to me if I enter this situation and this brokenness. What's going to happen to them if I don't? 
Who's going to stand up for this person, the brokenness in their life, if I'm not the one that enters in and does that by the grace of Jesus? And so I think you take a turn in this argument where James goes next. I mean, you feel like his opponent kind of like concedes and go, okay, I got it. Faith works. They're very important. Gotcha, James. Relax. But he keeps on, and he doesn't let off the gas. He just keeps going. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is getting after it. And what he's doing right here is called a diatribe. All right? It's a Greek form of rhetoric. It was very common back in the day. And what he's doing is he's setting up an opponent, this imaginary opponent. He's talking about exactly what the opponent would say, and then he's responding to the opponent. Track with me for a second there. It's as if like I was talking out loud just with some imaginary person saying, hey guys, Tempe is the greatest city in the world. It's the promised land. Now, some of you might say that Scottsdale's pretty good and, you know, Gilbert's all right too, but no, Tempe is the promised land. That's a diatribe, all right? I'm arguing with somebody who doesn't like really exist in that moment. He's saying something that gets a little bit confusing when you actually read that person. Like they say, oh, okay, James, I get it. Someone has faith, I have works. You'd expect him to say the opposite, not the person who's saying, I have works. But the pronouns here more likely are just general. It'd be like someone saying, okay, James, I get it. Some have faith, some have works. The two are important. I'll agree with you there. Some are strong in faith, some are strong in works. And the problem for James is, no, no, you don't ever separate the two. It's not faith and works. And both are good, and some places have their strengths and weaknesses. People have their strengths. They're together, and they're inseparable. Faith has works. It says, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. They're not possible to separate for him. He watched his brother live, and he knew, okay, Jesus didn't just speak. He acted. Our culture has taught us something completely drastically different. Because I get to pick my shampoo. I get to pick my genre of music I want to listen to. I want to pick what kind of food I want to eat for the rest of the day. I could pick the city I want to live in. I have so many options, it, it's overwhelming. And so I wonder that if when we get to our faith, when we get to parts of the Bible like this, we don't subconsciously pick and choose the parts of it that are most convenient. The parts of it that don't cost as much. I mean, maybe we pride ourselves, I think so, in a lot of ways, healthily as a church, of being a church that preaches the word. We preach the word. We preach the word. That's what we do well. And amen. That is life-changing and has been for me. And we go, yeah, and some churches, they're about social justice. And amen, social justice. And James is going, no, you don't get to separate the two as Christians. You want to talk about faith that saves the faith that my brother was talking about? It's a faith that leads to your hands doing something, your feet doing something, not just your voice speaking. And so he goes on with his argument, keeps going, doesn't let off the gas. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is, this is James' ironic slow clap. Oh! You believe God's one? Good job. Yeah, yeah, that's good, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. 
for James, he's, look, you're saying something that's scripturally founded. What the person just quoted is, De- is in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. That's scripturally based. And the person quoted it, and then James is attacking him. What's the deal? The problem for James is the person is quoting part of the scripture, not all of it. And as Christians, we are called to not just pick the parts of scripture that make most sense, pick the parts of scripture that really get our hearts. We take the entirety of the story of scripture, and that shapes our lives. And for James, he's saying, if you just want to quote that first part, you're no better off than demons. They know God's one. They know Jesus is Lord. They know he's the Messiah. But in the end, there's just going to be nothing but judgment for them. This is the scripture that Jesus pointed to as the most important commandment, right? The Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And the problem James is saying is, hey man, you're going to get an ironic slow clap if you just quote that first part. You need to get to the part where it says, you love your neighbor as yourself. So he shows us a negative example. But now he's going to show us a positive one. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, quick summary, the story of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, he quotes something that is very famous to a Jewish tradition. Every Jewish kid would have known this by the time they were two years old. What happens is Abraham is called to be the man where God's going to bless him, he's going to give him descendants, and the whole world is going to come to know God by knowing his people. And then, one day, Abraham gets approached by God, and God goes, Hey, Abraham, yes, God? I want you to do something for me. I want you to go make a sacrifice. And Abraham goes, yeah, of course, definitely. On the mountain, sounds good, great, let's do it. I want you to sacrifice your son. Uh, you mean a goat? (laughs) Abraham is called to this moment where he has to walk up the mountain, and he's called to sacrifice his son. And what he's saying right here is, He's justified by his works. Now, when I first heard this story, I kind of took it for granted. I was like, okay, cool, story, awesome. And then I used to be in a chemistry class with this guy, and we'd always get into talks about life and philosophy, and we'd be sitting there kind of writing our reports and going through stuff, and we'd just get into conversations because you'd be in there for three hours. And one day, he starts talking about religion. He found out I was a Christian. I was just barely a brand-new Christian. And on our way walking out of class, he's like, hey, man, you ever st- heard the story about Abraham and Isaac and God and the whole sacrifice thing? I'm like, yeah, definitely. Hear that story? Good story. He's like, yeah, um, is God just like a proponent of child abuse and sacrifice? And I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and then I walked away. <laughs> I didn't have the answer, and so what I did was I went and struggled with the Word of God, like we all should, when you get to something that kind of butts up against your own head, and I couldn't figure this out. I'm like, this kind of sounds exactly what he's saying, until I actually read a verse in Scripture that gives a lot more light on this whole situation. It's in Hebrews. It's going to be in chapter 11. Turn your Bibles there and read it with me. Chapter 11, verse 17 is where we're going to start. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promise 
was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom he said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. You read that scripture and you get a little bit of a light on the whole situation. I always wondered, how did Abraham do this? He's going to kill his son? Like, this is the son that he was really excited about? This is the son that God said, okay, all the descendancy of the whole promise I gave you is coming through your son. Not just your son, that one, Isaac. And then a couple weeks later, he goes, hey, by the way, can you go sacrifice Isaac? How could he possibly have that kind of faith that would give up everything and be so willing to go, okay, I'm going to give up my son? Most likely he's marriage. Imagine it's going to be an awkward situation coming back home after that. Future of sons, gone. Heritage, anybody remembering Abraham ever? Gone. He's not going to have anything. And yet he's like, all right, God, let's do it. Why? He believed so much in the promises of God that when he heard that, he goes, well, you have to resurrect him back from the dead then, don't you? You promised it was going to be Isaac. So if I'm going to believe you, then okay, we'll sacrifice him. You're going to get him back from the dead. Hard, traumatic, yes. Can I do it? I can rest in the promises of God. And I always was curious, how do you have that kind of faith? And I think there's something else that we need to deal with as well. In the scriptures that we have right here, it just said, was not Abraham our father justified by works? We just finished Romans, and there, in other words, in scripture, it talks about the same person, Abraham. Was not Abraham justified by faith? So is it faith or is it works? You get to this point in scripture where it seems like they're contested, or it seems like they disagree, or maybe we're just unclear on what's going on here, but it begins to rub up against you a little bit differently, and you go, wait a minute, like, which one is he saying? Is he justified by faith? Is he justified by works? And I struggled when I was reading through this. I kept picking up books and commentaries. Explain to me how these two mesh together. Is it faith? Is it works? I don't know which one it is. Can you tell me, please? And we get so caught up in this mental, theological, ideological, trying to wrestle it all that we miss the whole point of what James is saying. There are people here who are starving and don't have clothing. And you're walking past them and saying, go be fed, go be well. The Levite goes by, has good ideas about God. And you're missing it because we get so caught up in our thoughts about God that we miss the whole point. That Jesus didn't just come and say, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Good theology, good theology, good theology. And I imagine James is getting so heated in this point because he watched his brother. He didn't just have people walk in and say, hey, I need to be saved from my sins. Because Jesus did that. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. You know what else? Get up and walk. You're healed. Tangible things. And I wonder if in this whole priding ourselves in our Bible knowledge and what we have and know about God, which is all good stuff, hear me. But are we missing the fact that we're walking by orphans and people who have had prejudice destroy their life and people who are starving because we're worried about what we might have to give up to enter into it. And so we preach the gospel, but we preach it at arm's length. Mine for me is time. 
I hold on to my time very tightly. I only have so much in a week. Money you can replenish, but I only got enough time in a week to do the same stuff. And when I think about what I got to give up to help the poor, the broken, the orphans, the widows, the people who have experienced the fall of this world, my gut flinches, ah, do I have enough time to enter into that? And I don't know what it is exactly for you. So hear me out. James is not saying here how you become a Christian. Faith works, faith works. In the very next verse, he says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. In the story of Abraham, in the story before of the bad example, James is assuming that to enter into a relationship with God, it begins with faith. But what he's talking about is he's writing a letter to a Christian church who's trying to figure it out, and he's saying, no, 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 you don't get to separate faith and works. You don't get to say that you have a saving faith and then sit by idly and preach at a distance, an arm's length from the people that are broken without giving them something tangible to show them how God restores this world as well as offers saving faith. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the works he's talking about. So what do we do? I mean, if faith has to do with works, as he's saying, and they're tied together, what do we do? Do we add works to our faith? Am I saying that you guys go out here and let's get signed up for something? Let's do some work. No. Remember, we're talking about the brother of Jesus. He watches the church speak and not act. And he goes, no, 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 my brother didn't do that. My brother prayed in the garden, and he said, all right, if this cup can't pass from me, then I'll do it. And he didn't just say, I came to take away the sins of the world. James is thinking about the journey where he had lashes on his back, a wooden cross splintering into that broken flesh, walking up to the top of the hill and watching his brother cry his last breath. He's saying, no, no, my brother, he talked about faith. He did so with holes in his hands and his feet and a slow asphyxiation until death. He says, you want to know have a faith like Abraham? You do it like Abraham did. You look back at what he, God had promised, you trust in that, and then you can act out of that. Not before, you don't act afterwards, you do it when you first have the faith in God's promises. But we have something better than Abraham. Abraham looked back to something that God had said. We get to look back at something that God has done. And Jesus showed us with his actions, with his hands, with his feet, that he'd be willing to die and give up anything to win this church into his family. And so we too look back to that promise and we go, you know how I show mercy and compassion to people who need it? I remember how Jesus showed me mercy and compassion. You see the person on the side of the road broken and beaten and you think, what do I do if, this, if, this, if I don't help this person, what will happen to them? And in your mind, you're remembering, if Jesus didn't come alongside the road and lift me up and help me, what would have happened to me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that you are a God that doesn't just care about good ideas, but cares about restoring people's whole lives and restoring this whole world. God, we can confess that we usually fall short of what you've called us to do, and so we repent and we look to you, Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, to renew our hearts. Give us an understanding of the mercy that you've given us so that we, too, could have mercy towards others. We love you, Lord. We ask that you'd show us how to have a deeper understanding of your love for us and that that faith would always lead to something, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.